0: Today, a classic conversation on Compassion Radio.
1: The Afghan border areas were far more troubled at times, as you know, the most dangerous place in the world. Thankfully, the government denounced the tragic event and arrested the uh, mob leaders that they could. They are now willing, I think, to be more open to dialogue on the issue of Muslim-Christian relations. But because of that incident, security was tightened in the border areas with Afghanistan.
0: Hello, friends, and welcome back to Compassionate Radio, the daily radio journal of God's intrepid people in the places that God sends them. Thanks for joining us today. Over the years, we've had the honor not just to travel, but to partner with an amazing organization called Conscience International, which is led by a true trailblazer, Dr. Jim Jennings. And as you know by now, the two of us have been on the road together again in Romania, Moldova, and Ukraine to get the real story on how the kingdom is responding to the biggest refugee crisis of the century so far. We've identified some terrific ministry partners with whom we intend to make a serious dent in the despair that so many now experience as a result of a truly unjust assault. More on that in the days to come. And we ask for your prayer cover as we return to the U.S. this week. The last major story that involved Jim Jennings concerned the fallout of the war's abrupt end in Afghanistan and the many loose threads that still dangle on as a result. It's a complicated web of details, but Dr. Jennings knows how to bring it all into focus. So, as we travel back from this last round of Faith Adventure, I'd like to revisit this story. It has a lot of parallels to what's happening right now in and around Ukraine. May what you hear inspire you to think, to pray, to act and to give so that others might live and experience the love of God's kingdom coming to the rescue. I'll tell you how you can do just that later in the broadcast. Today begins the three part interview on the subject. And again, thanks for joining us today. Now, here's part one of that story. Well, it's a new year and a whole new set of opportunities. I'm looking forward to seeing what God has for Compassion Radio and our partners over here at Conscience International. We've heard them before on the program from many of their field operatives. And, of course, Dr. James Jennings has given us some insight over the years on how to deal with the realities that are beyond our borders. Dr. Jennings, welcome back to Compassion Radio in 2022.
1: Thank you, Bram. It's great to be here on this new year.
0: Yeah, I'm glad it's a new year because I'm pretty ready to be done with 2021. You might feel the same way. Agreed. Dear friends, and we've had a lot of stuff to go through as a ministry, as a family, We're okay to say good riddance for the last year, but that does not mean that this year is going to be an easy one to start up. We can reset our compasses, we can get ourselves back on track, and we can get ourselves in the mode of expecting good things from God and acting like God's going to do it. You picked up the torch at the end of 2021, decided it was time to break through to places that we have not been able to go for years because of the pandemic. Can you tell me where you were active in in the past 30 days?
1: Well, I was in uh, Pakistan and attempting to bring aid to the Afghan refugees and to get started, if we could, in a girls' school for the lack of education. is one of the greatest problems with the new regime over there and with that part of the world in general. It's not just Afghanistan that has not educated its children, but there are millions of children in Pakistan who are not in school, 22 million children are not in school in Pakistan. That's the second highest country total in the world.
0: Did you find it was easy to get access to Pakistan this time, or was it a little more complicated?
1: No, quite the contrary. And uh, let me say that there were two events that shook the world in mid-August, and you remember what they were, and that was the American evacuation of its troops from Kabul, Afghanistan, and the collapse of the government there, the takeover by the Taliban Mm -hmm. fighters. And then within just a few days before, after that event, the earthquake in Haiti Mm -hmm. struck 9.2 on the Richter scale, which was larger than the one that killed 220,000 back in 2010. So... Those two events really shook the world and shook us up because, to answer your question, for two years, we have been unable to travel abroad as much as we would like. Some of our team leaders have done so, notably in the Middle East in northern Iraq and then also in Africa and in Southeast Asia as well. So we did that, but relied a lot on our local partners that we've developed partnerships with over decades, and yet I hadn't been able to travel But because of this situation, we felt it was absolutely important for the Southeast Asia director, Richard Sarker, and myself to go there to Islamabad and to the border areas of Afghanistan to see what could be done in addition to what we were already doing since early September.
0: I would say that it doesn't appear in mainstream media back in America that there's been a whole lot of attention or even traction on stories that are about what's happening between those countries anymore. Once our troops leave we don't care anymore. That would seem to be the kind of style we have as America. And unless we're sending weaponry there or a lot of money, we really don't pay attention to it. When we left and the government in Afghanistan collapsed, you were talking about the likelihood of there being millions of refugees and internally displaced people within Afghanistan as well, because the Taliban had pretty much shown its colors for the past 30 years. They weren't going to change their stripes just because they want the Americans to be nice to them anymore. Sure enough, everybody that you worked with was under threat. So tell me about the people you worked with and the kind of projects you were involved with in Afghanistan and Pakistan before the government in Afghanistan fell, and then what became of those projects, and why you went to where you did on this last trip.
1: Well, going back to 1998 all the way through 2017, we were very heavily involved in Afghanistan and Pakistan, primarily to start with during the early part of the war in Kabul and um, Mazar Sharif in the north and then Herat in the west. Uh, Later on, we settled down in Peshawar, Pakistan, to do our work there to respond to the refugee crisis. We even did child surgery at the Indira Gandhi Hospital Mm -hmm. in Kabul, and also surgery on children in Rawalpindi, which is the large city just beside the capital city of Islamabad. So we did surgery there as well. But the big events, in addition to the Afghan war, were the Kashmir earthquake, which took about 22,000 lives. And we were there with helping the U.S. Navy load people onto Hmm. helicopters to transport them, been transported by a mule train down the mountains. And we put them on the helicopters, stabilized them first, just out in the airfield. And
0: so we have an earthquake that happens in the middle of all this other turmoil, politically, militarily. And it's kind of hard to keep track of when all these events happen, but they all overlap and they all have similar kinds of effects. People are displaced. People can't get back to their normal routines. And with wars happening at the same time, there is no other way to get back to the normal. These people have been moving for many, many years. We have an entire generation or two of young people that have never known their homes. And they've known nothing but traveling between camps or evacuating from one province to another or across international borders and hiding out in Pakistan and vice versa. So you've gone where the action is. You've found the people where the needs were, and you took action on those needs in the name of Christ. So it's been very much a gospel-centered kind of ministry. That's what I've appreciated about Conscience International all these years. It is literally the red letters in action. What Jesus said to do, where he went, you went. And you wanted to go again. Of course, we wanted to go. But during COVID, there was no availability even of international flights to get to some of these cities. And when it finally opened up for you again to go do an investigative trip, to find out where the people have ended up, where your key partners have ended up, you had to find a way to get back into Pakistan. And as I recall, it was not easy to get your passport okayed or stamped to get in.
1: That's right, Bram. It was literally a nightmare to do that. but. I've got to say that you're right about the effect of these large uh, disasters. In addition to the Kashmir earthquake, then there was the Indus Valley floods, which Mm. the UN says affected more people, like 20 million, than any disaster they had ever dealt with because It was so widespread. But you're right. Just to get back into a country that is increasingly under pressure and increasingly tense because of the war on its border in Afghanistan and because of the pressure from the United States and from China and Russia on the other side, it's very difficult to get in. So what we went through to get the visas was something I've never encountered in 30 or 40 years of travel. They now have electronic means to surveil you and they collect all this data and information and then they actually refuse to give you the visa anyway, unless you have political influence, mm-hmm. uh, which we finally were able to get our visa and travel there. And then as far as the conditions for travel during the pandemic, and it was terrible to have to do all the traveling at one time, which takes you know 48 hours before you can get there and get any sleep. It's it's a very rugged uh, condition
0: to go through. Dr. Jennings, on your way to Pakistan on this particular trip, you thought after all of the hassle of getting your visas and getting the political influence to help you get into the country, to do the thing that's going to help all the people anyway, you're ready to go. And then you get in the air, and a big thing came up that was going to complicate what happened when you hit the ground. And it didn't really make the mainstream media over here in the West. It had to do with a Christian factory manager somewhere in the country. Can you fill us in on what happened during that event?
1: Yes, we were flying and we were in the air when this happened. When we landed, it just had uh, taken place a few hours before we arrived in Islamabad. As you said, a Christian man was murdered by a mob and his body torched after being accused of blasphemy against the Prophet Muhammad. So this took place in a relatively normal part of the country, Punjab, a place called Sialkot whereas the Afghan border areas were far more troubled at times, as you know, the most dangerous place in the world. Thankfully, the government denounced the tragic event and arrested the uh, mob leaders that they could. They are now willing, I think, to be more open to dialogue on the issue of Muslim-Christian relations. But because of that incident, security was tightened in the border areas with Afghanistan. So we Planned to travel to Charsada in the khyber Pakhtunkhwa district. While waiting for a permit to be issued, another mob attacked and burned a police post because they heard the Christian wow. man that they intended to kill for another alleged incident of blasphemy had been taken into protective custody by the police. If I'm not mistaken, they attacked about five police posts and set fire to one uh, and burned it. So that wow. was something that created a security crisis when we first uh, got on the ground there.
0: Compassion Radio will continue to keep bringing you encouragement from the Word, inspiring stories from the front lines of faith, and awesome opportunities to make a difference for the kingdom around the world. But we need your help right now to continue doing just that. Every year, we commit ourselves to finding and supporting kingdom projects that are often hidden in plain sight. ...or that have an outsized impact in places that relief agencies or ministries just can't reach. Beginning last year, we put you in the center of the action in Ukraine. We visited with intrepid Ukrainian pastors like Oleg Magdich. Oleg now leads an all-volunteer medical evacuation team operating right at the front lines. He's working on a whole new program to network emergency workers... ...who do the job of transporting injured civilians and soldiers to safe hospitals away from the front lines. Because of your support of this ministry, I was able to send thousands of dollars worth of computer equipment to assist Oleg in his new initiative to save even more lives. Give as often as you can to keep these projects alive and to keep these stories coming to you each day. For all that God enables you to do, thank you so much. You can call us at 1-800-868-2478. You can write us at Compassion Radio, P.O. Box 77160, Corona, California, 92877. Text the word COMPASSION to 53445 or you can visit our website CompassionRadio.com Use any of these options to make your gift. However you choose to do so, please don't wait. God bless you for all you do. And now, back to our discussion.
1: If I'm not mistaken, they attacked about five police posts and set fire to one uh, and burned it. So that was something that created a security crisis when we first uh, got on the ground there.
0: So what did you do to keep yourself safe as you were traveling around between all these border areas and some of the, quote-unquote, safer green zone areas near the capital?
1: Well, for years, as I say, since we worked during the late 90s up to 2017, we had uh, reliable friends and comrades and associates in Pakistan, and it turned out that they were able to do everything that we needed in order to get the implementation of taking relief goods to the refugees that have been flooding into the country after the fall of Kabul to the Taliban. And we were able also to do some other things that we had not even expected. It was beyond anything we could even ask or think. We were very concerned about this incident because there is a law against blasphemy. Mm-hmm. And the legal authorities there said, well, uh, blasphemy is a serious crime. But so is murder, so they shouldn't have killed the man. They should have tried him first and then executed him, <laughs> which means that, fair. that the law against blasphemy is really a very bad situation for anybody.
0: I want to take a second to kind of dissect how this blasphemy charge was trumped up, because it happens not infrequently. They will find some kind of event that may or may not be true that's very difficult to prove or even to document and then they'll use that as you know, Exhibit A in a trial by mob. In this case, that manager of this factory, who happened to be a Christian, was set up to be accused of blasphemy simply because he upheld the law in that part of the country. What was he doing that so incensed the mob?
1: Well, some of the religious uh, extremists put up a poster, as I understand it, and uh, he said, you can't have that in the factory, take it down. They said, no, we won't take it down, you take it down. So he took it down and inadvertently, apparently, ripped uh, the name of the Prophet Muhammad in two. And then they spread this as a rumor, which inflamed the mob. Now, this has happened in that same town a few years ago when some school kids were coming home from school. They happened to be Christians, which are a very small minority in that country. And they were tearing out pages of something and throwing them away. And they said these were the Quran. Well, they did not do that. They were just accused falsely. Mm. And so they killed those children as a mob. So it's not the first time that's happened in that same town, in the same district of uh, Pakistan. So anybody who has worked in Muslim-Christian relations or in terms of Pakistan, Indian subcontinent, knows how volatile these things are and how fierce the emotions are when it comes to religion.
0: And what was the practical effect on you guys when you were trying to get to these border areas and see what the needs really were and who was left to help you? Were you safe in staying in public accommodations, or did you do something else?
1: There are four hotels that are safe for Americans in the capital of Pakistan, they told us, in Islamabad. And we stayed there, and then we applied for a permit to go into the border areas, which are very troubled, the so-called most dangerous place on Earth. We had worked there before. We were not troubled. My colleague who works for Conscience International, Richard Sarker, you've interviewed him. He speaks Urdu, which is a similar language to that Indian, India and Bangladesh, where he was born. And so we planned to go there without any problems. The permit never came through because the U.S. government embassy refuses to sanction it, and the Pakistan government refuses to sanction it. But we were invited by a parliamentarian to come there. And so we had the opportunity to get that permit, but just at that particular time, it was denied to us. Mm. So we sent our team, which we've been delivering aid right along, to the border areas where we have worked before. And and our intention is to uh, develop a school there for teaching literacy to young Afghan refugee children including boys and girls
0: now when you set up a school that would seem to indicate that there's an expectation that there'll be years of investment and need for education for young people not just a ad hoc seminar before they move on to some other place what are the prospects of those kids that are now in camps across the border from their own home country how long do you think they're going to be there in those border camps
1: you know, what's interesting is the U.N. has documented this, that most people in war zones flee their country and their home is sometimes internally displaced. But then if they have to cross the border, they're technically called refugees. They flee their home thinking we'll be back in six weeks when this passes over. And the actual average, according to the U.N., is 24 years.
0: The average.
1: Yeah. The people stay there in camps. Some are able to go back in some situations. Some are not. Some. Stay there and they live the rest of their lives on the UN Dole. Of course, I'm familiar with this from the siege of Beirut in 1982, mm-hmm. uh, actually Gaza, in, uh, back during the 80s and 90s. And the people there have uh, been living 70 years under conditions of uh, hardship because they had to flee their country. So this is uh, all over the world a growing problem.
0: You and I, of course, would be thrilled to see that the need for those schools would disappear in a very short time, but the likelihood of it happening is not high at this point. So we have to be preparing for the reality that to save a generation, not just to keep them alive, but what I mean by that is to save the hope of a generation of people who can give back, who can build something worth living for and invest in their people groups and build peace in the generations to come can only happen if someone pours into them the things which they need to flourish emotionally, spiritually, educationally. So you're going to invest in young girls. What would the school look like when you get it up?
1: Well, this will be a square mud brick building with room enough for a number of children, let's say uh, 20 children in the room. And the school we have in Bangladesh, the room held 180 children. Hmm. And they were very crowded, so that's not a good idea. But in this case, it's going to be smaller. And a teacher, a woman probably, who will be able to teach them uh, reading and writing. If they're very young, a man can teach them. But if they're in the high school age, girls, what we call adolescent girls, in Afghan culture, That girl's not supposed to go to school. She's supposed to be married. Mm -hmm. And so they either force them into marriage or deny them the right to go to school, which is the same thing. But let me broaden out a little bit, Bram, and just tell you that the World Food Program just reported that of the 22, uh, almost 23 million people in Afghanistan, 11 and a half million or or about half the population will face acute food shortages, Mm -hmm. famine risk this winter. Uh, three and a half million of them are children or women or nursing women. So you ask a question, how in the world does the World Food Program know that about Afghanistan? Well, the answer is because they've been feeding the population for years now. Yeah. And now they're continuing, uh, even under the Taliban, because they know they need this food. And the World Food Program says we need $220 million a month. Think about that. In one month, you'd spend $220 million to save people's lives. How much did the war cost? Yeah. $300 million a day for 20 years. So now the World Food Program relies on donations from different countries. They've asked for the contribution from every country. So far, they've got 15% of the money they need to yeah. do this. So some people are going to go hungry. Some are going to starve. And how do I know some are going to starve? Because when we were working in Afghanistan during the war, we helped to feed some people up in the mountains who were snowbound. And an agency came to me and said, can you help us? We need to get through the snow to get up into the mountains. And if we don't do it right away, they'll be locked in for the winter. So the road is not open, but we can plow it and we'll get up to the mountains if you'll pay for the four truckloads of food up there. And so we did So the point is that I know that many people will die of starvation if they're snowbound on the mountains, and especially since they had a big drought this year and the crop failed and uh, the war was going on and people were unable to store enough food for the coming months.
0: And also for storing water as well, because they would have to have stored water in warm weather, which would be actually in their homes or in the courtyards and kept warm because they'd be covered in straw and other kinds of things to try to insulate them. And when those tanks are empty, a whole lot of snow doesn't help you. It's like being in the middle of a drought and a deluge at the same time. You have no food, you've got no potable water to drink, and you are snowed in. The likelihood of that kind of starvation you're talking about, Jim, is grim. I have to say that because there may be many people that we can't reach, can't help. And I don't know what to say and how we pray for that, but it's a reality.
1: I've counted the number of refugee camps, 44 large official camps, plus there are many unofficial camps, perhaps a hundred settlements that are unofficial from Afghanistan alone. And so after half a century of war in Afghanistan, many of the people actually live outside the country.
0: My thanks to Dr. James Jennings of Conscience International for giving us a behind-the-scenes look at what it really takes to be the hands and feet of Jesus in times like these. He'll join me again tomorrow for part two of this three-part series. I hope you'll join us then. In the meantime, reach out to us and let us know how we can pray for you in your faith walk. You can reach me anytime through our website or the following email address, bramfloria at compassionradio.com. out the trying times bring out the best and the worst in mankind. I pray that God will bring out the very best of Him in you today. Send your special gift for the church in Ukraine today. Call 1-800-868-2478 or give online at CompassionRadio.com. God bless and we'll see you tomorrow.